Welcome to the Miles Pike Podcast, a podcast that strives to foster excellence in gospel music, both on the stage and in the local church, through conversations. I'm your host, Miles Pike. I'm hoping to probe into the lives and minds of gospel artists, industry legends, and some frontline people on the worship scene. Guests include fellow artists, pastors, session players, producers, songwriters, comedians, radio personalities, and theologians. Subscribe to not miss an episode. Share on social media with the musicians, pastors, and music ministers in your life. And please rate and comment to help take us all the way to being able to say that dozens and dozens are listening. Thank you for taking time to join in on the conversation. Now on to the program. Jeff Taylor is a name that you probably have not heard, but if you're in the music field, he's a whispered legend. In this interview, you will hear a very humble man who doesn't oversell his abilities, but don't be fooled. He's one of the best and a go-to guy for everything from recording sessions to overdubs to live concerts. He's traveled extensively in the Christian world with the Gettys, Andrew Peterson, Michael Card, and Buddy Green, just to name a few. He plays weekly with one of the main attractions for music lovers who are in the know in Nashville, the Time Jumpers. To name all the notable people he has worked with over his decades in music would take way too long, but at the apex of his career, he was the session leader on three of my albums. Well, he's a great friend and gracious to give us this time to not just hear some humorous stories, but get some insights into the music world and what he thinks the future holds for the gospel field. This was recorded a few months ago, and so there'll probably be some references to coronavirus and the shutdowns, but go ahead and pull up a chair, and let me introduce you to my friend, Jeff Taylor. Well, good morning, Jeff. I'm so excited to have Jeff Taylor on the line with me. Uh, to join me on the podcast. Been looking forward to this conversation. How are you today, my friend? I'm doing great, Miles. How are you? Oh, I tell you what, I'm about to uh, corona out, uh, but I'm yeah. so glad to actually be having a conversation with somebody. A <laughs> real person, be, yeah. Yeah, I can't be face-to-face, but uh, man, uh, just just glad to have you. And I always like to kind of start off with a little bit of uh, context for the for the listeners. How, how did we meet and... Uh, and and how uh, you know what what's our history well i think i got drugged down to texas for something uh with buddy green <laughs> who i had been playing with for about i don't know 15 16 years been and, that long uh, wow yeah it has been it's been a, it's been good it's been better than good actually buddy's like the evidence of god's grace in my life uh, as are you now, and uh, we we met you at a homecoming concert, I think, at your church. Yeah, I believe it was. The I met you. He annual. knew you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Buddy, well, he knew barely you. knew me at that point. Yeah, barely, he, but he, he knew you, and he vouched for you. And I thought, well, if if Buddy says he's a good guy and a good singer, then then uh, I believe him. And he was right. Well, he's you're a good guy and a great singer. Well. Uh, he, he's gracious. He's gracious. But uh, uh, let's let's get on into this. And I just want to start off with one of the the first questions that I wondered about you uh, after seeing you on stage. And I, I knew of you many many years ago, long before homecoming, because you were at Ben Spears Stamp Special School of Music with Buddy. Ah, and wow. so 
what I wondered that day, uh, ever, ever, ever since, was how many instruments can you play? Because uh, it is uh, it is staggering to to see you in in action. I can play two or three pretty well, and I can play a whole lot of other ones. Uh, functionally, if I learn the song or whatever, I'm getting better at certain ones. Sometimes I obsess over one. My latest obsession is claw hammer banjo. Uh, I went through uh-huh. a, man- a mandolin phase. I used to play trumpet and trombone and euphonium and. I'll get those out if I need to play eight bars, uh, but I don't have much chops left on brass instruments. Uh, but keyboards, you know, and, and accordion uh, have kind of become my main thing. Penny whistles. Uh, I don't know. I've never never really stopped to count because there's a lot of oddities that are related. I'm just uh, grateful that I've I've got so many nice really really nice instruments and uh have uh, a god-given gift to be able to figure all of them out to an extent that i can uh make some noise on them hopefully a joyful one. Oh man it's it's uh, it's something one thing i'll never forget is you were playing with buddy and he had his guitar on and would pull out the harmonica and then you were sitting at the piano wearing your accordion. It would pick up the penny whistle. <laughs> well, it was uh, between the two of you, y'all were a uh, quite I'm the all, production. I'm all he's got, you know. I'm the best in my price range, so I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to be an orchestra for for Buddy. <laughs> well, y'all are y'all are quite the uh, the team, and I'm sure it's it's come from you know just years on the road and playing around with different things. Absolutely. But, but uh, talk about your, your early years. I mean, where are you from and um, you know, what's your background? Yeah, I've been here in Nashville since 1990 for 31 years. And before that, uh, I grew up in western New York between Buffalo and Rochester, a town called Batavia, New York. Uh, I've got an older brother, eight years older, in two sisters, all older, 10 years older and two years older. And I was born on my sister's second birthday. I kind of ruined it for her uh, <laughs> and every birthday after. But we're, we're a close family. My brother and I were really close, even though we're eight years apart, because uh, he played music and I played music. And my dad, uh, he, was, he was a quality control manager at Sylvania Electric. And he was building our house, and he had, uh, this is before he worked at Sylvania, he was building our house, and he was working two part-time jobs and a full-time job and building our house on 80, 60 acres with another guy, just him and another guy. You know, the house came in a box car. It was one of those uh, kit homes <laughs> yep. and uh, a ranch house in uh Anyways, long story short, he was heading for a nervous breakdown, and he was taking these pills for it. Uh, I don't know where he got those or what they were, but he went to our local doctor, uh, and the doctor was a, uh, a he was an Italian guy, and he still made house calls. His name was Biagio Mansueto, and I'll never forget him because he plays into <laughs> my he plays into my story quite uh, a bit here. Because of what he told my father that day, he said, uh, 
he said, Al, uh, are, have you ever painted? And my dad said, painted? I came here because I'm having a nervous breakdown. And, and a doctor said, he said, stay with me. He said, have you ever painted? He said, no, I never painted. He said, did you ever play music? He said, well, actually, I was a good trumpet player when I was a kid. And then I even studied with a guy in Boston at the conservatory when I was little. And uh, But then I grew up and the war happened, World War II, and I got shipped off and I got back and uh, married Val and, and uh, we started having kids and now I'm building a house and I don't even own a trumpet anymore. And the doctor told him, he said uh, he knew this because the doctor was a fine violinist. He, was a, uh, he played in the local symphony, he was a concert master. And he oh. knew the love of music and what music could do for somebody. And he said, Al... You can take these pills till your liver gives out, and it will. But he said, my recommendation and my prescription is you buy a trumpet on your way home today. And my father said the day that, this is the, day, the year before I was born, he said the day I picked up the trumpet, I threw my pills away. And so that's how music came into our home. And wow. uh, so when I, by the time I was you know, walking and talking. He was already in a couple of bands and started a dance band and played in the concert band. And uh, so I grew up playing in my dad's band. When I was 10, his accordion player moved to Chicago on business. And I knew all the songs and the u local musicians union let me join. And so I, <laughs> I turned pro at 10, started wow. uh, getting my college money up. And, uh, you know, wound up in wound up in the Air Force band. I was a band leader in the Air Force band in Ohio. Uh, when I got out, I met my wife in Dayton, Ohio. So it's the best thing that ever could have come out of Ohio. We've been married 38 years, and uh, we have three children and <laughs> six grandchildren now. And that should about catch you up. Well, you know, uh, there's a there's a town called uh, Marion, Ohio. Yes. So did y'all go from Dayton to Marion? <laughs> Sorry, uh, I should have seen I should have seen that coming. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even see it coming, so I can't help you there. Wow. <laughs> uh, well, is there a, a statue in uh, New York that says uh, Jeff Taylor was born here or something? We can go find. Well, you, I mean, I want to go see it. I don't think so. I I, I left a probably not the best mark there. You know, when you're young, <laughs> you you make a lot of bad decisions, and I I probably I have a lot of apologies to make uh, from that time in my life. But <laughs> well, I, you, there I remember something um, either in your bio or something Buddy told me about when you were. 10 or 12, something like that, there was an award for the whole state of New York that you won for piano, I believe. Oh, he's making stuff up again. I, I, uh, I, I studied at Eastman School of Music when I was 12 till I was 18, and I graduated with the highest honors. I was the only one that, that year or for a few years to graduate with that. And, and I also won some Bach Award. Uh, Bach. I couldn't remember if it was Beethoven, point, Bach, Mozart. Yeah, I had to play all the two-part inventions, which there's 15 of them. Bach wrote them for his kids. 
and he wrote them in all the easy keys, but I had to go into a room and play them for a man uh, uh, from the whole book from memory. And uh, Oh, wow. Anyways, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was, was kind of a Vietnam moment for me. I try not to think of it, but I did win the <laughs> award. <laughs> That's that's cool. Um, well, with your your musical abilities uh, on so many instruments, and you could have pretty well excelled at anything in any avenue of music, but you chose gospel music, and and that says a lot about your faith. So you know what's your what's your story there? How you came to, to Christ? Well, uh, when I was about I guess fifteen, sixteen. Uh, this would have been back in the early 70s, uh, last century. And uh, <laughs> we, there, was a, there was a young lady in my class uh, that found, she was in the hippie family. I mean, her brothers, her three brothers had the, the best rock band for a, lot, for a long ways around. They were amazing musicians and uh, all had real long hair and, she was she was uh, kind of a flower child type, and she found Jesus and decided that the whole her whole family and the whole school, everybody in her sway needed to know what she knew. And it was amazing. That girl uh, kind of single-handedly evangelized her whole family. She was the youngest in the family. She picked off all three of her brothers and her parents. And uh, one of her, her oldest brothers, still one of my dearest friends up there. And uh, anyways, uh, it was, and I was, I was one of the ones uh, in, in her sway. And uh, I was raised Catholic. And I, mm-hmm. I read the Bible from cover to cover when I, when I came to faith, when I was about 16, and discovered all these things that didn't square with my my Catholic upbringing, and uh, my mom uh, was a little Polish Catholic lady who eventually died with a rosary in her hand, but I inherited a bunch of Billy Graham and Chuck Swindoll books from her library, so uh, she knew Jesus. She just, you know, she was raised that way, and, and that that was, you know, the, the way, that was her way, but yeah. uh, we had a lot of great talks about that. But anyway, so I, that was, you know, I wish I could say that I, I lived, a, you know, then that's when I started living the Christian life. But that's about a, about a year after that, I started taking as many left turns as I possibly could and uh, wound up bumping into a lot of walls. And God taught me a lot of, lot of uh, hard lessons because uh, I asked for them and... Uh, it wasn't until I was probably close to my mid twenties, right? Bef- not too long before I got married. I got married at twenty five. That I really came back to faith, and uh, it, and when I was li- we lived in Ohio for four years. Then we lived in New York for four years, and that my I was building houses there uh, with a co- with with that girl's brother and another guy, uh, Christian Builders, and it was fantastic. I learned all the building trades, and it allowed, oh, me to, wow. it allowed me to basically build the house that I'm sitting here doing this interview in uh, 
uh, oh, doing, that's cool. I mean, I learned plumbing, electric. I built all the cabinets from scratch. Uh, I love that. You know, if you that's a so that's my non musical hobby. Uh, I, I is, was I was wondering yeah, about that. Yeah, it's woodworking. I even built I built a banjo with a friend last year, and I built a bazooki with another friend a few years ago. Uh, a bazooki is an octave mandolin. It's not a not a a weapon. Uh, so if you if you're going through the TSA, you say uh, it's an octave mandolin, not a bazooki. That's 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 a protocol that I learned. Anyways, uh, back to yeah. It's kind of like you, you know, don't call shotgun on the plane, you know. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, they. Uh, but anyways, that's you know when I came when I was in New York, my wife who hardly listens to any music at all. Uh, suggested she said you know we should move someplace to a music center where because this carpentry thing is great but uh you know it's going to wear you out when you get older and what you seem to be better at music than anything and and she was right it was my best gift my friends I was working with in carpentry I'm not fit to carry their toolbox you know, but, but I learned a lot from them. I learned enough to be fearless and do, you know, build the house that I'm in right now for the about 70, 80% of it is what, you know, me anyways, uh, they, uh, so we moved here and I, I, you know, knew we had a two and a half year old at the time, our third child and, uh, the others were grown and we, uh, you know, New York and LA just seemed like not the place we wanted to raise our child. And, uh, Nashville seemed more friendly in that way. And it, it is way more fraternal, I would say for a musician. And when I say fraternal, I mean, a lot of my best friends are accordion players and, and piano players and guys that do what I do. And we cover each other and we check up on each other and it's all good. And as far yeah, as it's gospel, not so, so much dog eat dog. Yeah. And as far as gospel music, I uh, I I moved here originally because I heard, you know, Amy and Michael's stuff, the stuff Brown Bannister was producing, and I thought I want to be a part of that. That's great. And I came down here, and I wound up getting a job at uh, actually Stephen Curtis Chapman's brother Herb met me, and he told me he said you should audition for Opryland. It was a theme park here said you could yep. be a band leader there with your skills and so I did and I was and I did that for 7 years so I got, I came down here to do gospel music and didn't do any uh uh very little <laughs> you know I did some sessions but I did I I met a ton of people and and I actually yeah, I played with some country artists and that and and I I just I I my career has not been it's been part gospel music and part part everything i mean jazz celtic pop uh uh oh, country time jumpers yeah 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 it's, yeah. it's been you're, all you're a, one of the most eclectic uh guys i know uh, musically and I, I love that well i uh, got that's a, why we that's why we got you on a session on my uh, latest album because it was a it was a nuts project <laughs> as far yeah. as just you know, a, a big undertaking, and you just fit the bill to a T. Yeah, I've been I've been blessed to be uh, in s- almost every musical circle that there is in Nashville. I know somebody, or I know several people in it. 
uh, you know, I played on a bunch of Ricky Skaggs records, which I think is like the best band in bluegrass. I played on a couple Chieftains records, which is, you know, the Celtic world. And I toured with Elvis Costello for a couple of years uh, with some other guys. And I've been in situations where sometimes I'm the only Christian in the band and sometimes there's, uh, you know, three or four Christians and sometimes it's all Christian. And, uh, you know, the the easiest thing I ever did is play with Buddy. And, and uh, could, there's just two of us. We're on the same page. Uh, we, we're drinking from the same wells. We're schizophrenic musically, you know. Uh, and so, you know, that, that's great. That's great. Uh, I enjoy that. I've loved playing with Michael Card. Uh, but it was it was probably... 14 years into my stay here in Nashville before I started playing with Buddy and then Michael and then the Gettys. Uh, of course, Ricky's a Christian, but I, you know, I'd been playing with him, but you know, he, he's, he's a known as a bluegrass musician who does gospel stuff sometimes. Uh, anyways, there's that, that's, that's the musical thing going on with me here yeah what what uh, was your primary function with ricky uh he called me first to play uh accordion on a, a song that he was putting on a record that was kind of irishy and uh-huh. uh he asked me on the opry one night i was playing with somebody else i i played with a ton of people over the years at the opry and I guess I was playing with Mike Snyder, maybe, or somebody that night, and <laughs> and Ricky Ricky said, "Hey Jeff, could you come out to the studio tomorrow?" And I was just like, you know, before I came here, the the three people that loomed really large in the country world for me were Ricky and Vince and uh, Steve, uh, the. Good, all great guitar players. I mean, amazing musicians and singers. And and I've you know since I came here, I've played with all of them and know them all pretty well. Uh, well, Ricky and Vince are both really good friends. Uh, but Ricky asked me that day to play accordion on something the next day, and I thought, oh man, wow, that's this is great. And he he's going on stage, and he goes over his shoulder. He says. You pay the you play the penny whistle too, don't you? And I said, "No, sir, I don't." And on my way home, it was about midnight. I thought, I thought, how hard can a penny whistle be? It's got six holes, and you blow into it. <laughs> so, see, only only you would think how hard can a new instrument be overnight? Well, <laughs> so I ordered one that night, and and I recommended another friend of mine for the record, John Mock. <clears throat> and I played oh, accordion. Yeah, great. I played accordion, and John played penny whistle on it. But uh, my my two dollar and sixty five cent penny whistle came in the mail, and about a year later, we were in Charleston uh, doing the Ricky Skaggs and Kentucky Thunder live at Charleston, and uh, he asked me if I'd play penny whistle on a couple songs. Uh, just little parts, and all I had was this two dollar and sixty five cent whistle, and I thought, well, he's picky, Ricky. He'll he'll you know replace it later, you know. 
And everything that we did that night is on that record, including my my cheap penny whistle. Uh, I have really oh, nice great. ones. I have nice ones now, but uh, that was in the early days of the whistle. But Ricky's why I play whistle, and John Mock was my inspiration too. He's a he's an amazing musician. Well, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't knock the price of the penny whistle. I mean, anything over a penny is inflation. So, you know, well, this that's... is true. This is true. They in 1841, that I think it was, they sold them for a penny on the street in Dublin, and that's how they got their name. There you go. Wow, it's my story. Well, I, I'm sad. I'm sad to admit this now, but I not only heard this joke and laughed, but I propagated it by retelling it, and and so you. You may already know this, but play along. What do you call a pile a pile of bagpipes? Uh, a pile of bagpipes? No, I don't know that. Kindling for an accordion fire. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So okay, I I, th- I thought that was funny, and I told that you know years ago. But I repent in dust and ashes publicly before you now because you have done what I thought was impossible and made me a raving accordion fan. Uh, so how does that make you feel? <laughs> well, it's one person at a time, you know? I, I got, know. I'm... I got two Gospels going on. I got the important one about Jesus, and I got spreading the Gospel <laughs> of the accordion is really a cool instrument. And Oh, you know, man. On that note, I'll take a left turn real quick. I started, uh, before this virus thing started, me and a few other friends of mine started... <clears throat> the Nashville Accordion Society. Doesn't that sound classy? If you take the word accordion out, it's really classy. But uh, <laughs> we, and my whole deal was I wanted to get any and all accordion players or people who own them out to sit around in a circle and play songs together and play solos and talk about this geeky instrument and promote it among young players. And I'll tell you what, I got a couple of young guys in this thing uh, that are really up and comers and I'm really encouraging them, you know, in 10, 20 years, I'm I'm probably not going to be doing sessions uh, and I want this instrument to live on. And these guys are in their 20s and I'm excited about it. So there's, you know, that's that's another thing I'm doing. Oh, I, I love your your touch on the accordion, and I have um, I don't know. Growing up in church, you you hear so many uh, clunky, stiff accordion, you know, yeah. presentations that I was just yeah. like, oh my goodness, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, you even did a Mel Bay video a while back uh, on YouTube featuring the accordion. So if anyone is interested in that, you can go check that out. But I yeah. mean, is that what you're called on to do the most nowadays, or it it really varies, you know, because when Vince joined the Time Jumpers years ago, uh, he asked me if I'd bring if I'd consider bringing a piano for some of the stuff, and so uh-huh. uh, I started bringing a piano. I don't know, eight years ago or so. Whenever we showed up at the the uh, Third and Lindsley when we moved from from uh, the other club. And uh, so that kind of raised my piano playing profile. And I've always gotten a lot of calls for piano, but I've been getting calls for better sessions on piano, you know, since then. But I would say still my calling card is the accordion. 
which uh, I got to tell you, it's 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 God's sense of humor, and I mean that I mean that in in the best truthful way, because when I grew up, I accordion was probably my first instrument, uh, other than I could walk up to a piano when I was three years old and play stuff I heard on the radio, you know, with one finger. So that was a that was a gift. It wasn't my fault. It was God. But I was given an accordion when I was about five, a little twelve bass. <clears throat> and you know, I played in my dad's polka band, and I had a lot of fun with my dad and my brother. But I never liked the accordion. I really did not. Uh, oh, wow. I, I I I just I played it because I could, and I was good at it. But it, I liked piano better, and I liked keyboards better, and I was like, you know, it's, anyways, long story short, when I was 18, I sold a really, or I traded a really great accordion for a Gibson 335 1972 Sunburst electric guitar, and I don't have either one of those instruments. I wish I had them both. Uh, I thought I'd get more girls, you know, uh, and... <laughs> Which, which was dumb, and it just complicate my life. So, I went fast forward. I moved to Nashville, and I had I was thirty three, I think, when I moved here, and I didn't own an accordion. I'd been without one for fifteen years, <clears throat> and a dear friend of mine, Jeff Lisenby, who's a is a great believer and amazing piano player and a, and a world class accordion player, he. He was giving me tons of piano gigs, and back in 90, 91, he was turning me on to work he couldn't do. And one day he said, did you ever play accordion? I said, oh, man, it was my first instrument. I said, I don't even own one. And he's like, you need to get one, because I got more accordion work than I I can shake a stick at. And so I <laughs> I bought one on a trader's post, and... and uh, fixed one of the keys with bondo bought it for 250 dollars, and you know in a week it was paid for because the stuff that jeff had given me strolling gigs and that and i you know i still didn't like it but i'm like i'm trying to support my family this is another hook in the water so you know i didn't hate it i just didn't you know have a passion and then uh a couple years later i was uh i was uh a band leader for uh, i was the assistant conductor at TPEC or Tennessee Repertory Theater, we were doing Fiddler on the Roof. And when I went in the pit, I went from rehearsal pianist to playing one playing the accordion book. And that's that book has a ton of great accordion in it. It's exceedingly well scored. It's one of my favorite shows ever. And we had mm-hmm. a clarinet player that may have played on one of your records, Dennis Soley. Uh I, a, no, I don't. I don't know that that name. I haven't had clarinet before. Yeah. Oh, well, I take that back. I had. Uh, you had um, Sam Levine, I bet. Yes. Yes, yeah. that's correct. Sam and Dennis are really close friends, and Dennis is like a wise old man, a reed player in town, really amazing sax player, jazz guy, and he was playing clarinet in the pit, and we had these lines together that were like klezmer lines, you know this. Sunrise, sunset, you know that. And he was milking them and just playing them with so much passion. And I thought, I can't. I have to play these lines with him. Some of them, they're in unison. And I thought, my gosh, this thing is a wind instrument. It's not a polka machine. And (laughs) 
and it's not just a polka machine. And and I realized that I really that's when I felt it was like an epiphany. I I realized I fell in love with the instrument at that moment, literally. And that was God, uh, because after that, I started getting calls instead of, you know, for demos and custom albums from, from uh, you know, people like Ricky and, <clears throat> you know, whatever, Harry Connick Jr., Elvis Costello, uh, you know, the Time Jumper thing happened. All this crazy world opened up because there's a thousand piano players here and there's only a few accordion players. <laughs> so you do the wow. math and you got a better chance of working, you know? Well, I want to pose a question to you that may be, uh, I don't know, a little, um, little controversial, but as we travel and do our concerts over the last nearly 14 years now, I think the majority of what we hear on the road from church to church is best descri described in the word trite. Um, and people have differing views on this, but I would certainly not go so far as to say that bringing subpar music <coughs> into the church is the cause of the lack of orthodoxy, but I would say it's very much a symptom of a lack of orthodoxy. So, you know... Trite music is not the cancer, but it's it's kind of the weight loss, you know. <laughs> uh, and I've got my opinion, but what would you say is the cancer itself? Why do you see uh, banal music in the church sometimes when we have the most glorious message to sing about? Why is the music weak so many times? And I'm not just talking about in its in its presentation. I mean in its content when there's so many great songs out there sure. why, why do we latch on to uh, the, the simplistic and the the ones that really do a disservice to the message yeah yeah and indeed this is controversial because uh, uh, God works in in a lot of churches where I might not think he's working. Uh, oh, and so, I, I I know and, that and he, you know he uses that us too. in spite of ourselves. But yeah, exactly. Uh, he's using me, which is which blows my mind. So, uh, and I play the accordion there. I've said it, uh, but <laughs> he, I, I really, I do see it as a. a I'd lay it at, unfortunately, at the feet of uh, a. The church has gone, I think, and this has been a problem probably for millennia. The church has gone off and copied the world in so many ways, and the teaching has been dumbed down. Uh, everything's being dumbed down uh, in our country. I know that you know in the in the schools and everything's moving you know in a direction uh, that that's not toward God but away from God. And uh, because of that, you know, you're you're gonna wind up with, uh, you know, these Seven Eleven things. You're singing off the wall. You know, you sing the same phrase seven, same seven words eleven times, whatever. Uh, but th there's hope. There's there's such great hope. Uh, and when I met Keith Getty. Uh, 
I I realized that you know that guy is him and his wife they're like almost single handedly rescuing congregational singing, uh, which is oh, amazing. Oh, it's crazy! What I mean, and, yeah. and it's not just them now. It's <clears throat> it's others like <clears throat> Andrew Peterson's song. Uh, that that he and Ben Shog wrote uh, is, is he is he worthy is he, is he oh, worthy man. that's that's like in the category of in Christ alone uh, and I love Keith's story uh, we've been really good friends ever since he he landed here maybe ten years ago yeah ten eleven years ago I was on his first Christmas tour helped him put that together and and uh, I've had the privilege of introducing him to Ricky and Allison and a bunch of bunch of people in town who this town has really embraced the Gettys, which I'm really, really proud of and happy with because, <clears throat> because what they're doing is they're putting theology, great theology in, in their hymns. Uh, uh, Gloria Gaither, who I am a huge fan and friend of her and Bill, Gloria yeah. made a great statement. She said, hymns are portable theology. And, and that's what they should be. They shouldn't be these mantras, uh, which so often they are. Uh, and, and, and with the stuff that Keith writes, uh, it's, it, it, it's theology. And, you know, uh, he, the way he arrived at what he does, if you don't know his story, it's worth knowing. Uh, the thumbnail is... He heard how deep the Father's love for us, which is probably it might be my all-time favorite modern hymn. Uh, by, okay. Stuart by Stuart Town and Stuart Town yeah, yeah, and he and he he heard that hymn and it just took him out. And but it had the same reaction from Buddy Green the first time he heard it, and from me the first time I heard it, it just took me did, down. Did um... Did you know I recorded that and I had Buddy do harmonica on it? Yes, yes. I didn't know if you had if you had heard that, but he did Abs- a splendid absolutely. job. I I knew he'd do a good touch on it, but he just blew my mind. We we got to sing that and play it with Stuart in Keith's living room on Stuart's fiftieth birthday. That was really special. Oh. Uh, but anyways, oh, when Keith heard that, he thought. He was a very successful arranger, conductor, and that in his young youth, you know, in his early 20s. And he heard that hymn and he said, this is what I want to do for the next 25 years of my life. I want to write hymns for the church. He contacted Stuart, uh, got, on a, got on a train, a plane, a, a, a boat. Uh, you know, he made his way across to where Stuart was and... Matt Stewart at his flat, and they they got together, and the first hymn that they wrote was "In Christ Alone." Well, you know, you got to start somewhere. Yeah, uh. exactly. <laughs> so, but what I love about Keith also is that you know he's he's a really humble man, and he's uh, and he but he's really driven uh, about this purpose. And he is uh, watering the garden of hymn writers, and he's got some. He's got a, a bunch of young hymn writers in their twenties and thirties, and that that are writing with him. Matt Boswell, Matt Pappas, that are writing fantastic stuff that that is up to the same standard as what Keith and Kristen have been writing. So, anyways, uh, 
that's my answer about what's going on in church music. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I've been in a lot of church services with Buddy, and I, you know, when we're there, we go to these. We've played at churches, and I see people just like crossing their arms and looking at the floor. You know, a lot of people my age and that, and you know that I hear folks quietly wish that they could do some old hymns. But then I'm in some churches where they do the old hymns, and uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. It it it's it's a it's a tough thing. This music uh, uh, subject in churches, but oh, um, I know it's I'm, one of the touchiest it things is. out there, and and that's why I'm asking you, so I don't get in trouble. Yeah, ever. yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, you can get me in trouble. No, I, but I I'm just here to say that uh, I'm I'm a glasses half full guy, and I look at. I look at what the Gettys and the and you know Matt the Matts in uh, the uh, Andrew Peterson Ben Shive writers like that are doing. Oh, and I'm yeah. going Ellie Holcomb. They, I mean, there's some there's some amazing writers out there. Sandra McCracken. Uh, there's there's a great crop of writers that are writing wonderful stuff that are you know. I look at the Gettys, they're kind of like, they're kind of, they remind me a lot of Bill and Gloria in their heart. Uh, I, I've often said they're a young Bill and Gloria. Uh, and very much, you know, the guys are the same kind of crazy, you know, uh, off the wall business geniuses. And the women are, are, wordsmiths and ladies to the nth degree both of them Gloria and Kristen so well, I am mm. grateful to have been in the company of both those couples and I, I can't I can't believe you know that I, I know them and have been able to make music with them yeah I think they've made uh, great inroads in that way and I honestly wonder how some of the music is getting out there because it's you know you're not going to turn on most Christian radio and hear these writers that you're talking about you're going to hear right uh, you know the the stuff that I don't know uh, the, the stuff that we were talking about and 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 let me let me ask this because this is not even anything I had had you know, had on my list to ask you, but I, it's something I've wondered. And if there's a musical answer to this, I can't think of a better person to ask. But one thing we have noticed, if we go into a church and they sing a hymn that we're not familiar with, I mean, very quickly, I mean, if the words are on the wall or, 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 you know, whatever, if there's no music, we can pretty well follow along very quickly. But if it's a modern worship chorus and we don't know it, it's extremely hard to just jump in there. I, and I don't know if that is, and I wouldn't say that is uh, every song. I mean, but I would say it's it's an overarching thing that Martha and I just look at one another like, why can we not, <laughs> why can we not follow this? Do you do you know what I'm talking about? And and, and yeah, do you have a I reason do. for that? I do. And you're asking a stodgy old guy this, so you have to. You have to listen to my answer through the filter of the <laughs> fact that I'm a guy with a white beard and a bald head. 
<laughs> but but my honest opinion, and I feel this way about popular music also. Uh, I think the most amazing music in popular music was written in the '40s when they could really write melodies and and unbelievably complex chordal stuff and that. And to be honest with you, uh, you know, that, that all kind of fell to the, you know, Elvis and the guitars and three chords and all that stuff. And it was kind of rescued in a way, uh, in a big way, I think, by the Beatles when Paul McCartney started writing brilliant melodies again. Uh, hmm. And, and uh, that is happening now with with you know the hymn writers that i mentioned uh the first time i heard what is uh i was in andrew's living room actually when we when he did uh uh he is worthy with a bunch of people and we were the antiphonal chorus and it was like singing an old hymn and the first time that i did uh in christ alone the first time i heard in christ alone by the second verse i knew it you know yeah Because it's a great melody, and great melodies are hard to come by these days, it seems like. that They're out there, but they are hard to come by. And Keith uh, has told me, you know, that he will write uh, as many as 200 melodies before he finds one that he really is excited about and, and wants to use for a hymn. So, you know, if you're, if you're writing in that way, uh, which, you know, scripture says we're supposed to do everything as unto the Lord. And we're, so we're supposed to be excellent at what we do. That doesn't mean dashing off the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, Oh, yeah. So when I think of, when I think of, uh, you know, the old hymns and great melodies, but just lush music. The first one that always comes to mind is Crown Him With Many Crowns. Yeah. That is such a beautiful melody. And it's not a simple melody. Right. But it's beautiful. It's singable. But it's like every note is a key change. Or, right. or excuse me, a chord change. Right. You know, it's such yeah, a which complex is, piece of it, music. Yeah, it is. It is. De- definitely. I I have... <clears throat> I am starting a project. This isn't an advertisement. I'll talk to you about it in months from now when I have done it. But oh, uh, advertise all you want, Cl- brother. No, Cliff. <laughs> no, Cliff Barrows and I were were. I, he was like a mentor to me the last twelve years of his life. Uh, I met him through Buddy Green. You know, Cliff was the song leader for Billy Graham, and I asked him one day. I said because he had lost his sight uh, near the end of his life, could just see shapes and and half of his hearing was gone. And he said, uh, I asked him, uh, well, you seem to know all these hymns, you know, I mean, you know, he, he, he's not reading the words cause he can't, he can just see shapes of people out there and he's, and yet he'll call these hymns and he'll, you know, Oh, that third verse is so great. Let's sing that again. Lord, uh, you know, I wander and, you know, the, Come Thou Fount, he'll, you know, he would recite the whole third verse and then we'd sing it. Uh, mm-hmm. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Uh, prone to leave the one I love. And I asked him one day at lunch, I said, Cliff, man, you seem to know a lot of hymns. He said, oh, he said, my my mother 
challenged me to uh, memorize a hymnal when I was 14. I said, really? <clears throat> he said, oh, wow. uh, he, I said, did you? He said, well, yeah, it was my mother. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I said, well, which one? He said, Tabernacle Hymns 2. So I immediately went home and searched for Tabernacle Hymns 2. It was put out in uh, 1934, and there was 351 hymns in it. And I got a I got a PDF copy of it, and then now I have a hard copy of it. I finally found one, and my <clears throat> I have a a vision for a project where I want to I want to record uh, all the hymns and put the the put the music up, and I'll play it on you know like pump organ and piano or accordion or whatever different instruments on different hymns. Mm-hmm. And, and put them up on YouTube like a hymn a day kind of thing. And I started... Oh, yeah, that'd be about one a day. I started messing with it the other day, and the first one was Worship the King. And that's, an, you know, that's like crowning with many crowns. It's a fantastic mm-hmm. melody. You hear it once, you know it. And so that's that's your answer about, I mean, you know, why you can't... And I have the same problem. I'm a really... I'm a really good musician. It's what I do for a living. If I didn't, you know, if I, you know, you live in Nashville and you make a living at it, you're, you're a really good musician. That's, that's a sea of them down here. Uh, and for me to walk into a church and hear some modern hymn and not be able to sing the second, sing it the second time through, that's problematic. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. You've yeah. seen, you know, when, when I'm on a session with you or whatever, I hear a song once, I'll write the chart out, you know, and then I know it. If it's a good song, it's going to be easy to go in there and knock it out and play it. If it's not a very good song, uh, it could take us quite a while. And that's what's going on to me. That's just my humble opinion. Well, that that's that's helpful, and if nothing else, I'm just glad to know I'm not the only one. Oh no! Oh. <laughs> uh, um, but one one quote from Stephen Charnock that just made me say "ouch," and I want to use it to set up this next question. He said to pretend to uh, to pretend to homage God and intend only the advantage of self is rather to mock Him than worship Him. When we believe that we ought to be satisfied rather than God glorified, we set God below ourselves. Mm. Imagine that he should submit his own honor to our advantage. We make ourselves more glorious than God. Yeah. And I just, you know, having seen that in myself, that tendency, you know, what I want to be uh, satisfied, I, I want this, and so this has got to happen without saying what would, God wants to please God, you know, whether it be in music, whether it be in life, I mean, just ouch. Um, but a phrase often said, but rarely understood, uh, you know, worship is not about you. I've heard that all my life. Right. And that that's whoever you are, audience member, background vocalist, instrumentalist, or artist. It's not about you. It's uh, not about men, not you, not me. Um, if that's true, then how can we manage to remember that when the lights come on and the music is immersive and the spotlight comes on, or in some cases the smoke <clears throat> machines get going? Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's something that we can think when we're 
on stage and all the eyes are looking at us, but we're trying to point away from us. What's a way we can think about that? Uh, yeah, that's that's a really, really deep and difficult subject. And it's it's one of the, I mean, I quit music years ago when I got really serious about my faith because I could not justify in my mind how to on one hand Jesus says die to yourself and on the other hand uh, the music business and the entertainment world says I gotta be me look at me I'm so great and oh yeah and if you're not recognized if people don't know you you're not gonna survive yeah so so yeah that's that's claiming dependence on you and not on god and you know i mean i sold a bunch of i sold a bunch of great instruments and stuff back then i mean really walked away from it became a carpenter which served me well later you know but uh but i it was only until i met people with some depth in their christian walk uh like buddy green and and mike card who had already walked through the same questions uh, and come out the other side, and and figured out how to to do the balancing act, and it it is possible. Uh, but I'll tell you what, men men make it hard uh, because. Well, if you're talking about worship, if you're just talking about worship, and you leave entertainment out of it. Uh, my, I, I I think many, even maybe most, uh, I'll probably take fire for this. I think many churches are are doing music, uh, in they're they're not doing it right as far as creating worship. Uh, I think I don't. I think the idea of people standing out front. With lights on them and and microphones, uh, leading the singing where their voice through their microphone is louder than the entire congregation singing, is completely the antithesis of what needs to happen. Uh, there's got to be a way, and there is a way, and I've seen it happen for. Uh, musicians to be almost invisible and uh, it, part of it is what we've been talking about uh, is pre- presenting the right material singable beautiful good melodies great melodies great melodies uh, and and theologically sound lyrics and uh, you don't need much of a song later when you're singing amazing love. How can it be that my, that thou, my God would die for me or in Christ alone or how deep the father's love for us. You don't really even need a song later. I mean, you just need somebody to, to get it started and it will, it will happen. Oh, I cannot tell you how many times, and I mean, I'm a, I'm a nobody, but I can't tell you how many times I have had pastors, Ask me at dinner or whatever, you know, something along the lines of, you know, our, our music just really needs a kick in the pants. You know, our, our um, 
our song leader is older, our song leader doesn't have a great voice, but it's all we have. What can we do? Is there, you know, do you know of anybody that could come do it? And my question is of the song leader, are they faithful? You know, it's like yeah. God has put them there. They're part of that body and they're serving to the best of their ability. Are they faithful? Are they living holy lives? Do they love the Lord? It's like, give me somebody who can, has the qualifications of an elder. Give me someone who you know, truly loves the Lord. And I don't care if they can carry a tune particularly as long as they're faithful in doing it. I'd rather have that than a showman. God would rather have and, that too. He really yeah, would. Yeah, exactly. And it's like part of it is just working with what you have. If God wants you to have somebody that has more talent and ability, he'll send them. Yeah, it just you know, open up the Bible, you know, and look at the characters, the, the cast of characters that he used despite their shortcomings. Uh, the, the more, uh, I don't know, Vicky and I were talking the other day. We saw somebody on, the, on, the, on a newscast that's really, really a, a handsome guy, and, and we were talking about what a, a detriment that really can be. Uh, for somebody to be extremely good looking. And it's the same thing when somebody has an amazing voice or somebody, you know, it's, it's tough. It, it's really, it's difficult. And I think God likes to use, I know God likes to use, uh, people who aren't the strongest and the best looking and all that stuff. When, and when you're talking about corporate worship, it's corporate worship it's not it's not somebody standing up there looking you know really really fantastic in their new outfit and waving their hair around with the microphone uh that's that's just <laughs> Skinny not, jeans. Yeah. yeah whatever uh and and i i know you know i'm probably stepping on toes but uh the we really really need to rethink uh if that's the direction that worship has gone in a church, uh, it, it really need to rethink it. I mean, you, you might as well just turn the turn the radio on and listen to whatever comes up. Uh, if that's what if that's what you're after, and and a lot of times, it's it's bad renditions of. I mean. <laughs> So much, so much of the music in churches reminds me of U two, and U uh, two's fantastic, uh, and uh, you know they're like one of the greatest pop bands ever. But uh, we don't need to to be presenting a substandard version of U two for our praise and worship. You know what I'm oh, saying? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, that's a pet peeve of mine. Martha and I talk about this all the time. It's like any fad that the world has, give it five or ten years, and the church will catch on to it and do it poorly. Yeah, do it and, poorly. And the, and the world will have already moved on, and so it's yeah. old. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. the church is just do the church, you know, be be uh, be what Christ says. And, and I remember one thing you said at a session that we were doing uh, on the last album and you told me a story about a church that had the instrumentalists and singers completely out of sight. If I remember right, I think they were yeah. in the balcony at the back of the church above the audience. Yeah. And uh, if you only seen that once, I mean, that just sounds so interesting oh, no, to I've, me. I've, uh, well, I grew up with it, for one thing, uh, in, oh, in, wow. in, the, in the Catholic Church. 
uh, many, many of the Catholic churches and, you know, some of the Episcopalian tradition, they'll have a balcony and you're facing the front and the music is coming from behind you, the choir I and, did and not the, know that. the singer and the, and the, and the organist. Uh, and it's great, I think, because that, you know, then you can have uh, somebody leading the singing uh, and you don't even see him. You don't even know who they are. I was at Buddy's church uh, helping him with music a couple of times, and uh, they were they were meeting in this school, but they had a black curtain up, and the piano was behind this black curtain. And Buddy, I, I remember that we were yeah. at Buddy's church, and, and yeah. yeah, it, it, was, it Buddy was very was, interesting. Buddy was kind of in the in the on the on the, just barely outside the black curtain, you know, leading some songs, and uh, you know, nobody would really know except they heard accordion, and they figured it must have been me. Uh, but anyways, I really, I really love the idea of the musicians being. Heard and not seen, uh, kind of like they say, you know, somebody said children should be seen and not heard or whatever. And <laughs> having together, well, this is the opposite. I think musicians uh, in, in church, and I play at the church where the Gettys go quite often. I've been doing their online services, you know, lately. And it's a world class band, uh, always. It's a rotating cast of, of of players, but often Byron House is a great, uh, amazing bass player uh, from Nashville. Has played with Robert Plant and all these, you know, big stars. And uh, the drummer is uh, uh, Dan Needham, who who has played a bunch with the Gettys. He played with Whitney Houston. He plays with uh, Michael McDonald and his band. Anyways, so there's this great band, but it's always off in the in the. If you're looking at the 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 front, the band is all kind of clumped over in the right in the corner, and no one is standing. Everybody is sitting, and when the congregation stands up to sing, they raise the roof in that place. Uh, it's the best singing church that I have been in, and I don't know when. And, wow. and and the music isn't loud. It's it's really well played. Tommy Bailey is the name of the song or the the music director there, and he totally gets it. He chooses hymns that uh, old hymns and new hymns. Uh, and there's never I've I played there probably I don't know how many times. I've never played anything I would consider trite. Uh, and I've never played anything that I considered wasn't right for that particular service because of where the sermon was going or whatever. I mean, it's the best. It, it has. I sent him a text the other day. I said he sent me a text thanking me for playing. You know, on the another video service of theirs, they put them together like a Brady Bunch, and they do that excellent. I mean, they really do. Uh, the the hymns, it, you know, it sounds like a record when they get it done. But I told him, I said, you know, thank you. He thanked me for playing, and I I said, man, thank you for. I said, you have rescued my uh, opinion of congregational modern congregational singing. 
So there are people out there. Tommy Bailey is like one of the somebody that nobody would ever have heard of, but he's he's one of the finest song leaders that I've encountered in my entire life. Uh, he's he's doing a music minister job the way that I mean he should he should hold you know clinics and lecture on <laughs> on <laughs> how to be a music minister. Uh, really amazing man. And he's probably it, it is so, third, he's probably your age, uh, young guy. Well, it, is, it is powerful whenever the music minister goes a step beyond and carefully ties the songs and builds into the sermon. Uh, I've, I've seen it very, very few times uh, done well, but it, it is yeah, he's it's great. always incredible. He's great. But, well, you know, for a Christian concert versus a Christian church service, um, how do they differ, or how are they similar? I mean, the the you know the the element of entertainment versus ministry is that the main difference? I mean, should there be no entertainment value on on Sunday morning? Um, anyway, how, how would you how would you separate them? Uh, yeah, I it, I I think the only entertainment on Sunday morning is if somebody's traveling through and and they're going to play that night and you want to put a hook in the water for to get people to come out for that night maybe maybe uh, during a quote special music thing you know do something a little flashy or whatever but if you're there to uh facilitate leading worship you, <clears throat> you need to be as invisible as possible and facilitate mm-hmm. that worship. Uh, so yeah, there's a big difference, and it, and, and and I think uh, Buddy has uh, really a beautiful balance. Uh, when you know he's my biggest experience as far as you know, so I keep bringing him up, uh, and I love the guy, but uh, he uh, it, when when we do a concert. If it's in a church, uh, there's there's a lot of entertainment going on, and there's a lot of ministry going on, and uh, you'd be surprised when people perceive something that we perceive as one to be the other. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. you, you know what I mean? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, and, and, I, and I've been asked to do that quite a bit. If I've never been to the church before, and they want yeah. the people to come out for that night, they'll ask me to do, you know, something. But I, I always try to pick my songs carefully. I mean, I, I'm not going to do the showiest thing that I've got. You know, it's it's going to be more worship centric and just hey, I can I can hold a tune, and <laughs> and you know, that's all I want them to really. No, is hey yeah. saying yeah we'll come back and hopefully enjoy but it's um, a balancing yeah. act and it's and it it's is. just like it all of it all of it just has to be run through the filter of of uh praying oh praying about it and and uh, uh assuming that you're just that the spirit is going to lead you and you know you know when you're in a 
either situation when something feels right and when something doesn't feel right. And and if it doesn't feel right, maybe there's time to stop it or turn, take a different turn. And if it does feel right and you, you feel like, oh, this needs to go a different direction and, you know. That's why I have a foot pedal to fire my tracks. I don't. Yeah, I, I, buddy I like and to be able to move it, things around. Exactly, so. buddy and I are kind. Of, he's he. I've never worked with anybody like him. Where he's like, "What do you want to do, Jeffro?" You know, <laughs> in the middle of the show, you've seen him do that with me, and I'll, I'll say, "Man, we we need to do how to you know that that." Uh, what are they doing in heaven tonight? Oh, yeah, we haven't done that in a while, you know, and we'll do that, and somebody will come up at the record table and say, oh, man, I just lost my, you know, grandfather, and that really moved me, or whatever. So, mm-hmm. yep. Well, you're about as broad as it can be when it comes to instruments you can play. And I feel like you're pretty well just a musical chameleon and in about any jam session, but... On the other end of the spectrum, it seems like churches tend to be one-trick ponies. Um, uh, not not a whole lot of broadness or novelty. You know, at most, you'll have a blended service where they're going to do some old hymns and some new songs. But they all end up kind of sounding the same. And I, I certainly know that church must work within what God has gifted them with in terms of the staff and the players. Right. But more what I'm going for is if you go into any denomination out there, it's almost chord for chord, lick for lick, you're not going to be too surprised about what they're going to play on any given Sunday morning. And all that to ask, why are denominations so predictable musically? Is it tradition? Is, is it Does their particular doctrine somehow determine yeah, no, the beat? No, that, you just answered it. I mean, it's, it's Fiddler on the Roof, you know, tradition... <laughs> you know, it's it's exactly it. You know, uh, it, I I can give no better answer than that. Uh, it's it, it's pretty. I think it's pretty cut and dry. There may be you know, there's some complexity to everything, but uh, <clears throat> it's tradition. And I think a, a church needs to lean in the obviously lean hard toward. Uh, their strengths, you know, what have what have they got? You oh, know? yeah, yeah if, absolutely. If, if you're I, out in the country and all you got is one guy that plays guitar, then that's what you got. You yep. know, uh, you God'll God'll use it, and worship will take place if the hearts are right. Uh, if they're yep. not, it probably yep, won't take place. Absolutely, and and you know, I think about the Protestant work ethic. You know, we always think about it when it comes to our jobs and our families and, you know, that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's like the same work ethic should certainly apply to the church, should certainly right. apply to the musicians and to the music ministers Absolutely. and the singers yeah. and the choir. Yep. Yep. And and I guess my challenge would be to, to anyone listening that has, uh, you know, authority in that area. You know, if you are blessed to have a piano player and a guitarist and an organist and a drummer and you have a few... Uh, you know, different players. It seems like there's this unwritten rule that every instrumentalist has to play on every song. And what would make such a difference in in conveying the songs is if, okay, on this song, we're just going to use the piano. Or on this song, just the organ. On this song, no percussion. On this song, just a guitar. Right. Uh, 
Oh, yeah. this song, let's let's do it a cappella. You know, just some some changes in that way, and uh, and th- and thinking through the songs as individual entities, and not okay. Here's the song and the chords. Everybody jump in. Yep. Yeah, and you're I absolutely right. I, yeah, and and the acapella is a magic word to me. Uh, that needs oh, to yeah. happen more more in churches. Not that we need to sing acapella all the time, but it's a powerful thing in a congregation, and it needs to be used. You know, <laughs> whenever you can. What what is uh what's the oddest gig you've ever been roped into? And I wouldn't be surprised if you said my homecoming concert, but <laughs> oh, oh no, what's there, a weird story you've got? No, there's been there's been tons of bizarre things that I have I have done in my life. Uh, I think the oddest <laughs> one, and you when you said roped into, uh, I used to do a lot of gigs for the Opryland Hotel and uh, like convention gigs. And there was a uh-huh. there was a booking agency at the hotel that would call me or at Opryland that would call me for these gigs, and they they started calling me for weird stuff because they knew that I was that I had a broad you know if it was Italian or French or uh, Irish or whatever they knew that oh call Jeff he'll do it, and <laughs> so the, a gig came up uh, that was they needed a reggae band and. Uh, <clears throat> I I, I I turned it down and uh, and it came back around. I said, call so-and-so, call so-and-so. And they called me back and they said, we've called so-and-so and so-and-so and, and they can't do it. We really need you to do this. And I said, I, I really don't want to do it. I'm not a reggae band. And, and they called a third time and it was somebody that I worked for a whole lot. So I finally said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. Well, we get so I went out and I bought a Bob Marley book, you know, and I learned some of the songs, you know, even <laughs> to sing them, you know, and and uh, it, it, I mean, people have to understand what reggae music is a is about to 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 know what happened here, because uh, and and I actually really like that groove and that that you know it's it's a it's cool stuff, but you know, it's, it's not like, uh, it's not something that I had a lot of experience in, but I can, you know, I'm willing to try anything. So I called him up and I said, uh, or I, I emailed him and I said, well, what are we supposed to wear? And they said, well, the sheet says, <laughs> the sheet says tuxedos. And I, I, I said, no way. And they said, well, that's what, <laughs> They said that's what it says, and back then a lot of those gigs were tux. You know, a lot of gigs were tuxedo gigs, jazz trio gigs. I would do oh, wear a tuxedo, or you know, a, a casual, uh, some wedding gig or whatever, wear a tuxedo. So I had a couple tuxedos in my in. You know, I had, I'd own some tuxedos because I wore them all the time, and so. I said, no way. And they said, no, that's what it says. So I told the guys, I had like a five-piece band, a guy that played steel drums. And I mean, you know, and a really great guitar player, drummer, bass player. And we show up at this hotel in Nashville. And and we're in, and I'm like, this is great. White men in tuxedos. Here we go, playing reggae music. You know, we're in your dreads, you know, and and we we were in there and there was a bluegrass band next door. There was like all kinds of bands all over in different rooms. And 
we literally got shunned and there were there were uh folks there were africans at this convention in dashikis you know that colorful those beautiful out, uh-huh, yeah. uh, outfits that they have they literally would put like one foot in the door and pull it back when they saw us on stage playing bob marley music in in tuxedos so <laughs> anyways the check cashed and nobody got hurt and and uh wow. that is i i i really i i have a great affinity for uh for that music and i mean if they'd asked me to play you know motown or stevie wonder or ray charles or whatever i would have been all in but <laughs> but reggae oh my gosh <laughs> Okay, so yeah, that's well, my, we put a little reggae yeah. on my album, so that we, may have been only the second we, time. But. We did. I had flashbacks <laughs> during that. I didn't tell you about. No, uh, that's, that is funny. Yeah, that's funny. Um, well, you've obviously had a lot of experience, and so I'm curious what you think. And, and and we're coming to the end of our time, so you can just speak in generalities. But as far as the arc of gospel music, uh, is you know as far back as we can look. Where, where do you see we've been the last few decades, and where do you think we're headed? I mean, do you think uh, we're headed toward a um, a spiral down in uh, in the music that we've critiqued some today, or do you think we're headed toward a revival where it's going to kind of challenge, uh, you know, the, some of the some of the <coughs> triteness will slough off? Oh, I'm not a prophet, but. Uh, so, so nobody could really answer this question well, but, uh, I have so many young friends when I say young, you know, when you're in your early sixties, uh, people, people in their forties and fifties are young. Uh, I have so many young friends that, uh, are writing amazing stuff and playing fantastic music and love the Lord that I have great hope. There's, you know, I'm the, I'm, you're all, you know, I revealed earlier, I'm the half glass full guy, the optimist. So I'm going to go with, uh, God has always got his people until we're raptured and out of here. He has always got his people who are doing his work and uh, whether that number is small or or great or growing or getting smaller I can't tell you but I do know that I live amongst them and make music with them and it's it, this is I'm I'm excited well that that's encouraging um but last question before we get to the lightning round um you and, and Buddy just happened to be there the night of our ninth annual homecoming uh, when we found out that we were having a late-term miscarriage. Oh, yeah. We we found out, I mean, literally just a couple of hours before the lights were coming up and had to hit the stage. And you both were so kind to take the reins at one point in the evening to not only pray with us and with the audience, but... Y'all followed up on the phone, and it was just such a second nature to both of you and, and comforting to us after the news uh, of the loss of our child. And um, first of all, thank you again for that kindness, not just then, but, but now over the years. But where I'm going is is this. We live in 
we already lived in a social media environment that um, tended to divide us, and now we're in a <laughs> quarantine environment and, and shutdown mentality that has made us less and less social, uh, less kind, less aware of that's a person I'm responding to, not just a comment on Facebook. And, you know, we have a world full of people that will hate and berate you if you're not as loving as they are. <laughs> so right. how can how can we as the church, um, you know, the corporate body and the individuals in it, stand out in these hurtful and hateful times? How can we serve one another better? Uh, just, I mean, live, live the gospel, die to yourself, live for others. And uh, it's, it's not always going to be recognized and appreciated, but if you consistently do that, it will be recognized and appreciated. Uh, it, 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 these, are, these are the most divisive times when we thought we, you know, just when we thought we were really divided, it got way, way worse. And yep. uh, this whole shutdown thing, I, I've told Vicky so many times, and uh, Vicky's like my, Vicky is my secret weapon out there in the world because she stays home most all the time, and I'm out there amongst them. And uh, she is praying for me all the time to be a light and encouragement. So. To That's have awesome. to have somebody that you know is is lifting you up and praying for you to not say something stupid uh, because I can she knows that she lives with me uh, <laughs> uh, and and to uh, be a light and an encouragement to those around me every day I, I mean on a, on the best day that's that's what I you know, on a good day, that's what I want to be. And uh, I'm glad that Buddy and I were that night, but it was just, it, it, it was, it was no, uh, it was nothing to thank us for. I mean, we, we really, we are men who have been given a great deal by God and by others that, that we can never repay. So to extend that kindness, uh, to others, whether we know them well or not, is is not a difficult thing. It really isn't. Uh, there's a and and as far as social media, I, I mean, I I've if anybody looks for me, you can't find me. I don't I don't have any of it. <laughs> and and I'm not I'm not saying that people shouldn't be on it. I know people that use it well. I'm sure you do. Ron Block, this banjo player for uh, Allison Krauss, Ron's a dear friend of mine. He uses social media in a really powerful way and, and is always spreading the gospel and talking about the Lord. He's a deep theological guy. Uh, I know myself too well to know that I could get in so much trouble so quickly if I were <laughs> if I were engaging in social media. So that's why I'm not on there. Uh, I think when when you say how can we serve one another better, I think some people 
uh, if they're like me, they need to just sign off and get completely off of social media. I don't need it to make a living. Uh, some people do uh, whatever, but that's me. I kind of have to be on it in some way, but... Yeah, it's a dan- I've backed it's a, off a lot here lately. Yeah, it's a dangerous place, uh, and face to face is always better. Well, I, uh, you know, you, you say it's it's not anything for you to do it. Well, it, you know, to be kind to us during that time, but man, it was a, a lot to receive it, and uh, you know, and, and it's one thing to stop in the moment and pray, but but to you know, weeks and months later to have been followed up on and. And uh, just a friendship to develop from that. We appreciate it uh, more than you more than you know. And I'm glad that, in one way or another, it led to this conversation. And I, I oh, think thank that you. it's been. I feel like it's been helpful for uh, for the listeners. I know it has been to me. I've been able to ask some questions that I haven't had time to otherwise. Um, but I always want to end these with some lightning round questions. You can be as pithy as you want in oh, your boy. answers. But, okay. Uh, but I just I, I love. Uh, getting recommendations and uh, and finding out more about the interviewees. And I've gone uh, on the previous podcast that I've recorded, and I found lots of, uh, of interesting uh, books and, and music from these questions. So uh, I'm just going to fire these off at you, and, and we'll see what we, what we find out. But who is your favorite gospel artist? Andrew Peterson. Uh, favorite secular artist? Uh, probably Tim O'Brien. Tim O'Brien. Okay. okay. Got to look that, that person up. He's a Roots artist. Buddy Buddy turned me on to him and been listening to him a lot over the years with Buddy in the van. All right. All right. Uh, favorite gospel song? Uh, After the Last Tear Falls by Andrew Peterson and Andrew, Andy Osanga. They wrote that together. It's it's quite a few years old, but a great one. Okay. Favorite secular song? Uh, boy, that's loaded. Uh, I'll, I'll <laughs> say Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Ooh. All right. All right. Most influential artist? Uh, yeah, that's a loaded question. I mean, in many ways, Buddy was. I learned so much working with him and being around him. Uh, Vince has been a huge influence on me from working with him. So, and, and Ricky, uh, you know, people that, that I have had close contact with, but as a, as a, a musician, I would have to say Stuart Duncan and the fiddle player and, uh, Oh, right. Okay. And Brian Sutton, the guitar player and, uh, Jerry Douglas, I would have to mention those those three names, and of course Dennis Soley, who made me fall in love with the accordion by playing the clarinet so beautifully. <laughs> yeah, and I, yeah, Stuart Duncan. He, that uh, I'm gonna throw out my own recommendation. They, they did a instrumental album with John Mock and a couple of other guys. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Celtic hymns. Yep. Oh my goodness, that is a lovely album. Yeah, just lovely. Yeah, he just finished um, a record with Yo Yo Ma and Chris Thiele and uh, the Goat Rodeo, I think it's called something like that. So it's pretty, <laughs> pretty heady stuff. That that sounds fun. Um, album recommendation, any genre. Uh, probably my favorite 
album of all time is it's kind of vintage Andrew Peterson, The Far Country. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Lots of lots of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis recommend you know uh, you know things that harken back to their books and writing and and just it's kind of a it's a kingdom record. It really is. It's really an, an mm-hmm. amazing record. And as far as uh, uh, I have to I have to mention, will the circle be unbroken? Uh, record by uh, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band in the seventies. Uh, that's the record that flipped me on my head when I was about 18, 19. And I thought I play all the wrong instruments. I was playing piano at the time and accordion. And I, I heard that record <laughs> and I thought, and I heard Doc Watson for the first time and Vassar Clements and, you know, mother Mabel Carter. And that was probably one of the first magnets that drew me down to Nashville. It's a, a remarkable record that still stands on its own. I still listen to it. You're the second person to mention that album, and I, I've got to go find it. I just haven't had time amid all the, the it, stuff going on. But it's, yeah, it's probably looms large in almost every Nashville musician uh, that you would really talk to if they were to li- list ten records. I bet you it would be among them on all their lists. Well, I've really got to go find it now. Um, since you have traveled so broadly, um, I, I love asking this, so we can maybe uh, hit one along the way. But best place you've ever eaten? Home. Home. Well, I I, I agree with that. My wife is a killer <laughs> cook. Uh, there is cheaper too. There is no place like home, and I just I I'm like you know. I've That's eaten. your second Wizard of Oz reference. You know that, right? Right. My, <laughs> my, I have eaten. I, I, I eat cheap on the road, and even you know, I have money to eat well if I want to, but I don't. Uh, I, I've eaten my way around the world in hot dogs. Somebody asked me where the best hot dog was. <laughs> I had the other day. I said I had a great one on the street in Copenhagen, in. Uh, uh, so yeah, that's kind of a. I'm I'm not a a foodie guy. I don't. Uh, I've been to some fancy restaurants, but nothing nothing's like eating here at home. I, I'm still stuck on that. Have hot dogs in Copenhagen. Oh yeah, oh yeah, they're everywhere. I found them. I find them when I'm traveling because they're cheap and they're good. Protein. I call them protein yep, yep. protein tubes of doom. <laughs> oh my. Well, uh, what about a funniest moment? Uh, I'm sure you've got plenty of them. Oh, but yeah, which one I got that stands plenty. Uh, uh, well, I was with, you know, uh, when Buddy and I do uh, uh, the classical medley, I I was down oh, yeah. at Laity Lodge with him, and, and you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm quite bald. And I also wear a cowboy hat, or I wear a... Uh, ball cap all the time pretty much everybody mm-hmm. knows me with a ball cap on and I had Mike Card years ago gave me a, a toupee that some TV evangelist <laughs> gave him I think I mean it's really <laughs> bad but it was the perfect it was the exact color of my hair and I <laughs> I put it on under my ball cap and at some point during the classical medley uh I I 
at Laity Lodge, plan for a men's group down there. I, I took that ball cap off. I usually take it off at some point during the classical medley. And uh, I took it off, and there was that that incredibly bad tube. And uh, <laughs> Buddy about swallowed his harmonica. So <laughs> that was a good moment. And there was another moment on that same song when we were at the Skirmerhorn, uh, uh, which is this amazing concert hall in Nashville, you know, it's just multi-million dollar facility uh, that the symphony plays at. And we were playing with the symphony and we were about to do that song and Buddy panicked and looked at me. I was sitting at the piano and he said, he didn't, he said under his breath, my harp is backstage, the one that he needed for that song. And backstage was a long ways. And so right in the middle of the, you know, while they're introducing him or whatever, talking to him, <laughs> I go tearing off, you know, in my suit uh, backstage and I'm tearing through stuff. I mean, it was it was like a long ways, more than a couple hundred yards uh, to get back and find his harmonica. And and I, I <laughs> ran up as fast as I could and when I got to the edge of the stage, I walked very casually up to him and he had his hands behind his back and I put his hand, I put the harp in his hand and went back quietly to the piano and, uh, the, you know, brought, brought the house down anyways. <laughs> I've, I've had a couple of those moments. Uh, yeah. You know, disaster strikes just to, yeah. you know, at yeah. 5.59 and you're supposed to go on at 6.00. Well, I, ha oh. I have to tell one more quick one. On Mike Card and I were in England at 5.30 in the morning in, in, at an airport. Uh, it, uh, and uh, we, had, we had had just a couple hours sleep, and Mike was drinking a cappuccino, and he spilled it all over his shirt. And, oh. and so he went off, and he came back in this in bright red soccer shirt that he had found, you know. <laughs> And so, if, for those of you who don't know m me uh, and do know Michael Card, I, Mike looks more like my brother than my brother does, and and we I've had a lot of fun with that, much to Mike's chagrin. And uh, <laughs> so I asked him after we'd been sitting there about a half hour longer, uh, and I asked him if I could borrow twenty quid because I didn't have any of the local money and. He gave me 20 quid and, and uh, I went off and I found that same shirt and I <laughs> kept it in the bag and we got on this big plane and we sat on the plane. We were heading for, we were heading for Denmark or Amsterdam or something. And, and, uh, and, and I got up from the plane at some point uh, about a half hour into the flight and went back to the men's room with my bag and I put on that red shirt and he had, he, he had his ball cap off. So I took my ball cap off and, you know, we both got wire rim glasses. We got jeans on and these bright red <laughs> soccer shirts and we're sitting there like the Bobsy twins, you know, and he's reading and didn't notice it for like a half a minute. And he looked up and <laughs> he, he, he called me something under his breath. Uh, but 
He's he sent me that picture just recently. This was years ago, and he sent me that picture a couple about a week or so ago. He sent it to me again. Every once in a while, we'll send it back and forth. But anyways, that's uh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Well, t- just funny small world things. Uh, I remember we were in the studio, and I walked in with a uh, a, a patched uh, hat on. Uh, and it was, you know, made in Scotland and all this stuff. Yeah. And and you you asked, you know, where I got it because you had bought it over there, gave it to your son. Yep. And then your son lost it. Mm-hmm. And and anyway, it was like the identical hat. And I mean, we'll, I guess we'll never know if it was the hat, but uh, <laughs> it was made at the same shop. <laughs> yeah. And I found it at a Goodwill in the middle of one of our trips, I don't even remember where, I want to say like Colorado. There you go. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, that was, that was funny. Um, <laughs> what about most memorable moment? I mean, goodness, you've played so many places, but what's one that, um, that sticks out? Oh gosh. Uh, buddy and I went down to, uh, an Island called, uh, reunion Island off the coast of Madagascar. It took two days to get there. And uh, we flew through Paris because it's a, a French-owned property. It, it's uh, and it's a it's a volcanic island, and uh, it's there's a guy that has a, a a festival down there, and he calls it the Festival of uh, Virtuosos, and uh, there's four nights of concerts on the island, and uh, they do the same concert every night, and they have a they have these. They invite you know three uh, from three different or four different countries. They invite these virtuoso players from. Uh, and Buddy and I re- renamed it the Festival of Virtuosos and Rufus and Jeffro uh, <laughs> because they had a they had the most amazing pianist. Uh, made me feel like I could couldn't play chopsticks. Uh, Va- Valentina Lasitska. Russian pianist uh, on the yeah. bill and, uh, and a balalaika guy named Alexandra Ar- Archipovsky. And uh, <laughs> right. he played balalaika, which is, has three strings, and two of them are the same, but nobody told him that. And he played it like he was Jimi Hendrix meets Segovia. Uh, <laughs> he was unbelievable. And then there was a Swedish guitar player and uh, it it wasn't a gospel event. It was just they wanted us to play all instrumental music, but it was uh, it was near Easter time, and there was a lot of Catholics on the island. So I suggested. I said, you know, I told the guy uh, uh, who spoke French and English. Uh, French was his first language. I told him. I said, you know, Buddy wrote a really. He was there to play harmonica, and uh, I was there to, you know, play accordion and whistle and piano. And and I said, you know, Buddy wrote a really great song, uh, and these people would probably know it. And since it's around Easter time, you know, uh, it might be nice to do, uh, you know, a gospel song. And uh, so, anyways, just for the first time in the festival's history, they let uh, him, they let somebody sing. So he sang Mary, Did You Know, every night. And I arranged it uh, in a way that involved the Russian pianist and the, the, uh, the string quartet they had there. And the, oh, yeah, wow. it's pretty cool. 
the Swedish guitar player. Is there player any video listening. of that? I would love to I, <laughs> see that. I don't know. I doubt That's, it. That was kind of that was back in that that was probably before everybody was filming everything on their cell phone. Uh, I mean, yeah. you could do it, but it wasn't wasn't as uh, prevalent. But that was really neat. Yeah. We we had a lot of that, we had a great. That sounds awesome. That was a, a very memorable trip. Oh goodness, man! It it's been it's been great um, as always talking with you. But uh, nice to dig a little deeper than we're able to sometimes, and just to see your heart and find out more about your story. And I'm going to uh, talk to some of my friends in New York and get a petition started to get that statue built for you. <laughs> but um, anyway, I love you, man. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Love you, Miles. Love to your family, too. Bye-bye. Well, I hope that you enjoyed this time that we spent together. I know that I have. And I pray that it has made you more appreciate the forms and functions of worship and the gifted people who help facilitate it. Continue the conversation by emailing any questions or suggestions you may have through my website at www.milespikemusic.com. That's M-I-L-E-S-P-I-K-E music.com. Support this endeavor by rating, reviewing, and sharing. If you want to go the extra mile, then I would greatly appreciate it if you purchase some digital downloads or hard copies of my music through the website and patronize our guest in any way that you can. Websites and details to that end will be in the show notes. This program plans to release every other week, so keep your eye out for the next edition of the Miles Pike Podcast. Till next time, worship wisely.